0: Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa. This is our mid-December show. And boy, do we have news for you. And I'm not talking about the new nut carts in Frontierland. To talk about all the news, let's bring in one Mr. Jim Hill.
1: Jim, how's it going? It's been a busy week, Len. (laughs) Has it, it, Jim? Has it really? (laughs) Yeah. What's the Chinese curse? May you live in interesting times? These are very interesting times. Exactly. Obviously, everybody knows that the deal that we've been talking about for a couple of months now, the Fox acquisition, nobody wants to call this a merger. Nobody wants to call this an acquisition because Fox as an entity is still going to exist. It's just selling off these very specific parts to Disney as it reimagines itself. And this is basically a straight stock swap, isn't it, Len?
0: Yeah, it's all stock.
1: So I like the term aqua merger. Aqua merger, there we
0: go. Part acquisition, part merger. Mm-hmm. Let's go over what Disney gets in terms of film. It's X-Men, yep. Fantastic Four.
1: Well, Fantastic Four, I had a friend at Disney reach out to clarify. It turns out there's a gentleman who actually bought the rights to the Fantastic Four from Stan Lee himself for $250,000 back in the late 80s, early 90s. And so Fox has been dealing with this guy. They have the rights to make Fantastic Four movies through this guy. Oh, so they don't actually
0: own the rights. It's a licensing. Fox is licensing.
1: Yes, but it's one of these situations where evidently the language of the deal is that Fox has the exclusive rights with this gentleman to make Fantastic Four movies. What I was told basically by the person at Disney is that they're just going to make a run at this guy and just, yeah. you know, how about this much money? How about this much money? How much is this much, yeah. much money? Yeah. <laughs> and just get the characters back officially. Yeah. But it's one of these secondary issues of the Fox acquisition yeah. that now Disney owns the contract that Fox had with this guy. And you, had, you had mentioned this a couple of times when we first started talking about Disney and
0: Marvel, that mm-hmm. back in the 80s and 90s, Stanley would basically enter into a licensing agreement with almost anyone for almost any amount of money. Yeah. And this is this is an upshoot of that. So it complicates things a little bit for Disney on the film side, but the fact that they're now a hundred and sixty billion dollar company mm-hmm. means they can throw money at this guy. All right, fair enough. They pick up the the distribution rights to the original Star Wars film, right? Episode four. Yep.
1: They'd already threw Lucasfilm basically had the rights to the second two, Empire and Jedi, plus, of course, the original trilogy, but again, it's now under one roof, and that thrills the folks at Lucasfilm, and much the same way that the folks at Marvel are thrilled that so much stuff came back indoors. now. Does it get problematic? Well, yeah. I mean, you know, for example, Deadpool last year, the R-rated Marvel movie made, you know, damn near a billion dollars off of a $50 million budget. One of the reasons that Iger extended through 2021 is that... Control freak who can't let go? um, What were you going to say? I prefer to put a little more benign spin on it. Integrating these two companies. Is going to be tough. I mean, just the approval process, just getting the government to sign off on this, that they're, they're estimating is a year to eighteen months. Eighteen months. Yeah, that's what I was anticipating. Yeah. And now, mind you, that Trump himself called,
0: <laughs> he tweeted out yesterday. Yeah, I'm good. He yeah, t- he tweeted- I'm good with this. Yeah.
1: It's Reached out to him. Rupert Murdoch himself, and hey, great deal. It's pretty much guaranteed that this is going to be clear sailing. But it's still going to be a lengthy process. Likewise, you have two giant entertainment companies just determining the redundancies. Yeah. Just understanding that this is going to take a long time. Disney, for example, yesterday announced that they're going to be leasing the Fox lot for the next seven years. Which gives you some idea of some of this stuff is going to move at a genuinely glacial pace, Len. Sure. We're not going to see Disney's The X-Men next week. No, no, no. So let's finish up
0: on film before we talk about about lots in television. So they also yep. get Avatar, yep. but more importantly, Disney now owns seven of the top ten highest-grossing films of all time. Yeah, that includes Avatar and Titanic, which were. Fox and one and two. Mm -hmm. On the television side, so you mentioned they're leasing the lots. That's because Mm -hmm. Fox is an active producer of television shows. They've got 20th Century Fox. They've still got National Geographic, which I think is a great fit for the theme parks. And we'll talk about that. God, yes. They got Fox Networks Group. They got FX. They got Star. Mm -hmm. They got Endemol. They've also got a ton of regional sports, Fox Sports Regional. Sky Sports, Star Sports, and Fox Deportes, which is pretty big. Yep. And that, that goes in addition to ESPN.
1: Uh-huh. And never mind what this means internationally for Disney, how, how it expands its reach. And We're entering a really turbocharged age as Disney expands its international reach, uh, coupled mm-hmm. with the fact that this is really all about Bob Iger's vision of the company, where he basically thinks that within... The next five to 10 years, the world of entertainment as we know it is going away. Whether it's the ABC, the CBS, the the NBCs of the world become less and less important. And I think that's definitely true. If you look at viewing trends, Mm -hmm. the channels that distribute the
0: content, the traditional channels like ABC, CBS, NBC, ESPN. Mm -hmm those are much less important now than the content itself. Oh no, absolutely. Right? I mean, we can go through the list of top 10 TV shows. We know what the names of the shows are, but the network that distributes them, I'm, I am less familiar on, like like off the top of my head, I couldn't tell you who distributes Big Bang Theory. There it's you go. It's probably CBS, but mm-hmm. yeah, so con- content is more important. You see Iger and Murdoch have two different visions of the strengths of their own company. Disney is looking at this saying, we want to be at a scale where we have enough content in distribution to challenge the Netflix and Amazons of the world. And I think that's directly what Iger doing here. But you look at Murdoch and he's saying within a few years the stakes here are going to be so high that we can't compete. Therefore the value of our assets, the value of our television stations and our film libraries and our sports things, they will be less five years from now than they are now therefore we should sell now and get the best price we can
1: and the other thing is the two different visions of the future of entertainment murdoch in a lot of ways is looking at this as it's an extinction level event what's going on in entertainment right now oh yeah yeah, yeah and so it's like what he wants to do is shed a lot of the properties that he views as problematic in the future yeah Sports among them. I mean, sports yeah. just going to be difficult. Yeah. And the weird sort of thing, he wants to reimagine Fox as a smaller, faster moving mm-hmm. creature that can survive in the new media terrain. where is Disney, their vision is like, okay, we want to be all things to all people. And yeah. this allows them to do that. There's parts of this I'm going to be intrigued to see play out. Remember, in 2018, Disney is launching. That new ESPN project. BAM Tech? Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's the baseball thing, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's sort of like a uh, web-enabled television with
1: stats and stuff like that. That's mildly interesting there. But remember, the companion one coming in 2019, the Disney version, where it's Disney anywhere, anytime.
0: Oh, this is the Disney dedicated channel that they've decided is going to compete with Netflix. Yeah. All right, so let me ask you that question because that's where I was going to go with this. Mm-hmm. With this deal, Disney picks up 30% interest in Hulu to go along with the 30% interest in Hulu Disney already owned. So I think it's Disney, Fox, and somebody else owned, basically divvied up. The, the other somebody else is Comcast. It's Comcast, exactly. Okay, fair enough. But Disney now, Disney now owns a controlling stake in Hulu. Disney can basically tell Comcast, you know what? We're rebranding this as Disney Channel 2.0, and Comcast can't do anything about it. I mean, they can, they can complain and yell and go to regulars and whatnot, but if Disney wants to take Hulu and make it the Disney streaming service, they can do that now. And the, the advantage of that is... Oh, Laurel, Laurel pointed out that, uh, that Comcast can throttle... Hulu now because uh,
1: net, tr- net neutrality just got voted down. It, well, there's a million There's a li- million pieces here. Thank you, Laura, for bringing that up because that's the problem of this story. Is This this is the media equivalent of a billion plates spinning at the same time. I yeah, mean, it's,
0: it's just the strategy in the last 24 hours that I, I, don't, I don't think anyone's come out with. So really, Disney can't piss off Comcast because East Coast is dominated by Comcast. And yeah. uh, didn't, didn't Comcast buy Time Warner? Now mm. it's
1: spectrum Something like that Yeah I was talking with Friends from Imagineering yesterday And they were like Yeah How would you like To have been the guy Who spent three Plus years now Working on the name And the rebranding Of Disney Hollywood Studios 2019 All of this stuff Has to walk Through the front door As you're Introducing Galaxy's Edge to the world And now suddenly Oh by the way We just bought Fox And you really need To accommodate This $54.8 billion Acquisition to the company All of that hard work out the window now should we just call yeah. this thing Disney Fox studio it's like could that be in the mix there yeah. I'd really like to be able to go into our synergistic meeting and say hey and Florida supporting this as well
0: yeah that's gonna be crazy you know that the, the team that did the for Disney's Hollywood Studios got whiteboards for Christmas, blank whiteboards, I might
1: add. Every part of the company had been focused on the launch of Last Jedi, and everybody was planning on going on vacation this coming week
0: after after today's uh, premiere, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. And so now everybody is like, well, maybe I better stick around. There's going to be a lot of the meetings are obviously scheduled for next month or thereabouts. But the terrain has so seismically changed. Oh, yeah. Friends at Imagineering were already pouring over the Fox Film catalog, the Fox television catalog, also trying to suss out what the pre-existing licensing deals are. Yeah, and that's going to take forever. Well, just one of the very first questions was, how long does Universal have The Simpsons? This is one of the highest earning properties that Fox has. And in just yeah. t- two years, we have the 30th anniversary. And it's like, Disney would obviously love to immediately cash in on that. But it's like, uh...
0: Yeah, this is one of those things in the theme park area where I'm not sure if Iger has completely thought through the entire strategy around three parks. He's, he's definitely done it for television, film, mm-hmm. and sports, and channel distribution. Mm-hmm. But let's say Disney says, you know what, Universal, you can't have the rights to The Simpsons anymore. So what? It's not really a bargaining chip.
1: But you see, the thing is that between the contracts and the language, I mean, for for example, think about the, the master licensing agreement that Universal's had for the Marvel characters since 1994. Yeah. yeah. Ironclad. Yeah. They revisited that contract when they did the Fast Food Boulevard at Universal Studios Florida, which in turn, yeah. they built the whole Simpsons land out for Hollywood. There are so many attorneys now who are just gleeful about this. Yeah. Billable hours. Yeah, no, that's it exactly. Just drilling down into each agreement and finding out what's the kill date. And and speaking of which, did you see the $2.5 billion kill fee if this deal goes south?
0: Yeah, so that's not going to happen. $2.5 billion is what? 5% of the overall cost of the deal? Yeah, that's not going to go through. Let me ask you this question. I know that Disney wants to get the prime Marvel characters in their own theme parks. Mm -hmm. I don't see Universal giving that up through any sort of loophole in the contract. I think we've fairly well established now that that contract is bulletproof. Do you think that Disney will use some combination of carrot and stick with the new Fox acquisitions to try and get that away from Universal? So say, for example, play ball with us on the Marvel characters and let us share them. And you can continue to have the Simpsons and maybe we'll throw Deadpool in for Halloween Horror Nights or whatever.
1: Or is Disney Disney not even even thinking theme park rights at at this point? Part of the problem, since Disney acquired Marvel in 2009, Universal has seen a surge in attendance at Marvel Superhero Island their retail sales go through the roof. Every type of film comes out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Disney's
0: basically doing the the, the content development and marketing for them.
1: So this it kind of speaks volumes that rather than just letting those attractions just sit there, within the last two and three years, we've seen Marvel do the, the a redo update of Spider-Man. Spider-Man. Likewise, Man. just last year, they redid Hulk. These are assets that the company values. And it, they did those redos, make it very clear to Disney, it's like, do we see this as a long-term situation? It's not like Disney, where it's like, yeah, you know, Peter Pan. We put that in 50 years ago. Oh, why should we have to touch it? They value these assets. So the terrain has changed overnight. And Comcast, as the owners of NBC Universal will obviously have some say further on the, down the line cuz suddenly just as talking about hulu yeah there are interesting new things to put on the table long story short if anybody who says they know exactly what's going to happen over the next year or two or three is lying because everybody I'm talking with at disney is still getting up to speed about this deal
0: yeah so a couple other questions before we move on to our, our main topic of the other day I know Fox is in the middle of acquiring Sky Network in Europe. Mm-hmm. They already own thirty nine percent of it. They're trying to buy the remaining sixty one percent. Is that going to continue prior to this merger? I think Fox is still trying to
1: acquire all of Sky. So Disney will eventually own all of Sky, right? That is the plan. But there are so many aspects of it. it may take for example. Iger, in his appearance yesterday on Good Morning America, which to give you some idea how media empires do it these days, that's where they broke the news. As Iger was on there, Disney was sending out the press releases. I want to say it's Robin Roberts who asked him, well, what about, we've been hearing stories about the Murdoch's family is going to become the the largest individual shareholders of the Walt Disney Company. And we've been hearing about, is James Murdoch going to come over and take on a role at Disney? And Iger... Would be a wonderful politician if he chooses to be. It's like, well, we're we're going to have conversations over the next couple of months about a role for, for James, and and we'll yeah. see. They've set the price. They understand the financial terms. But you bought the house, and now you're going through. Well, do we keep the kitchen, or do we remodel the kitchen?
0: Well, not only that, but it's like buying an apartment. You're keeping the tenants, yeah. some of the tenants, anyway. So this is my uh, this is my conspiracy theory. Mm-hmm. I think, and I actually believe this to be true. Mm-hmm. I think Iger Mm. decided to open Hall of Presidents sooner rather than later to show Murdoch that they're not a bunch of, quote, liberal Hollywood elites, that they can do business with somebody whose politics is different than their own. I legitimately think that's true. I think the fact that Hall of Presidents opening within a couple of weeks of when it was announced... Because it went from back in the first part of December, we had heard there was no official opening date. You know, maybe it would be in in 2019 or whatever. And then all of a sudden, it's like, oh, no, we're going to we're gonna open it before Christmas. I think that was Iger showing Murdoch that he can deal with the politics of the Murdoch family. That's my theory.
1: I am not going to say you're wrong.
0: <laughs> it's It was a symbolic gesture, right? It was one of those things where that it might come up yeah, at some point in a conversation. I'm not saying that the Hall of Presidents was... Uh, main topic in a $52 billion merger acquisition. But let's say Bob goes into his first meeting with the younger Murdoch and he says, oh, you know, oh, by the way, we're opening up Hall of Presidents. It's just a nice way to break the ice.
1: I would honestly not be surprised if Iger saw that as a bargaining chip or something that Murdoch Sr. would respect.
0: A goodwill gesture. Just you know, Like I said, I don't think it was the main topic of conversation, but sometimes symbolic gestures go a long way. Let's talk about redundancy real quick. So you mentioned that what I've heard is that they think that there's $2 billion a year in salary reductions from redundancy. And that might be true, but don't you think there will be an equal number or at least a a large number of openings for new jobs around integration and strategy for all this stuff too? It's not like they're going to immediately start firing people, right? There's just so much work around both of those two things
1: now. Nancy constantly is looking at the Disney jobs page Not necessarily for work, but just to pay attention to what's going on within the company. And you can actually figure out what's going on at ESPN by the hirings and firings over there. They are constantly letting the old guard, the the broadcast side, they're they're winnowing the herd there. What they're ramping up for their web-based stuff and their app-based stuff and that sort of thing. I think that's what's going to be challenging about these redundancies. And merging these two companies is you're doing this at a time when there's this seismic shift in how people take in entertainment so it's not just gonna be well do we need that many accountants you know it's like well do we even need that department anymore as the business changes and this deal is more about Bob digers vision of the future of the Disney company than it is anything. Just to him, it's all about content.
0: Yeah, and I think that's true. The distribution channels themselves, they don't have great branding. I mean, aside from Netflix, mm-hmm. you know, and Hulu, I, I don't know that many channels that I would I could rattle off the top of my head with the shows that they have. Yeah. But even then, I mean, everybody's getting into the content production. I mean, Amazon, Netflix, they, the original series that these guys are producing are basically making the golden age of television. I agree. I mean, I think that's the that's the strategy. And you look at Murdoch and he's saying, you know what, 10 years from now, this this landscape is going to change. Do we have the money and the will and the skill to compete with a Netflix and a Disney? And he looked at it and
1: he said, you know what, we don't. Let's just take the money and run. No, no, no. And you've got to recognize somebody who's smart enough to do that. At the same time, you have to acknowledge this is a huge roll of the dice for Disney. Sometimes these giant mega mergers really don't work. But if you look at Iger's history so far, he wasn't in the door six months when he made the Pixar deal. Yep. Let's remember that Eisner had no less than two shots at buying Marvel. And at significantly lower prices and couldn't bring himself to do it because he couldn't see how that company would ever fit with Disney. And Iger yeah. had that vision. And same thing with Lucasfilm. I mean, last night, for the Jedi screenings, not even the first day of the movie being in theaters, Jedi has already made $45 million off of Thursday night. <laughs> what this movie will take in from its opening weekend will be stunning it'll it'll have covered its entire production costs in three days that's nuts oh a couple things before we jump to spectro you've probably heard that tokyo it has a third park in the works (laughs) avatar suddenly jumped to the very top of the pile as to elements that are going into that third park largely based on this acquisition and how that changes what Disney has to pay in licensing fees to Lightstorm Productions. That's, that's James Cameron's company. Yeah.
0: I mean, in, in this case, you know, royalties of a uh, hundred or a couple hundred million dollars over 10 years, that could be the difference between profitability and not on a third theme park yeah licensing yeah
1: that's it exactly so that suddenly changed the mix of a lot of things in fact i heard from a friend and he said you know how would you like to be the guy who's working on the marvel land for dca to suddenly be told okay wait <laughs> hold it maybe you want to take a few of the buildings off the table there
0: scope change if you mentioned that the first thing i thought when i saw that disney had acquired deadpool was yep. this would make an excellent Club 33 themed bar oh. in Disney's Hollywood Studios we talked about the Catwalk Bar yep. being rethemed if Deadpool doesn't become the destination bar at Disney's Hollywood Studios we will have all failed <laughs> The other thing, the other thing, and I tweeted this out, and it's, by the way, it was my most popular tweet ever. Yep. If Disney doesn't build the Grand Budapest Hotel in Orlando, uh, Bill Murray opens it. I mean, I can write this part of it for them right now. I can. Okay. I can have a treatment up
1: in an hour. All right, but only if they have the pastry shop down the street.
0: <laughs> in the last twenty four hours, we've got a number of emails from people asking about questions about how uh, Foxdale might lead to other new theme parks or theme park developments. So for. Uh, For Paul and Cindy and everyone else who's sent in those questions, we'll get to those on an upcoming show once we
1: know where the dust settles on this. Yeah, and honestly, that is the situation right now. Just one final thing here before we swing over to Spectro, but you got to remember that with all of the work that's about to get underway at the Disneyland Resort with the new five-star hotel, the Downtown Disney Anaheim, but yeah, they were about to do a Disney Springs-type redo of that. Oh, yeah. The thing that's being kept off the table for this whole thing is park number three, which is going to be built in the Toy Story parking lot at some distant point in the future. And the thing of suddenly having all of these Fox properties with the notion of well, they were going to create the Marvel land over at DCA. That's got to be at least as appealing as galaxy's edge to try to balance the crowds that will be surging to Anaheim over the next, you know, five to six years. Yeah. The concern is like, all right, do we do the smart thing? Do we just stick with the plan that we have now? Or do we fold in X-Men? Do we fold in fantastic four Yeah, or do we just hit the brakes And it's like, we have the opportunity in California, you know, because of the situation in Florida. We can't do a strictly Marvel park, but should we hit the brakes? And just keep a handful of Marvel properties going into DCA with the notion of, we finally do our Marvel theme park in Anaheim on the Toy Story parking lot. And supposedly that is one of the conversations that gets started very soon. They haven't turned key on a lot of the Marvel stuff yet, And the concern is like this is a once in a lifetime opportunity and especially in the California market where it is getting so hyper competitive and they Mm -hmm. know that Universal has so much other stuff planned for Hollywood we need to be smart here and so I'm just gonna leave that out there to dangle and I will circle back on my sources and see what they have to say come January and February but the guys working on the Marvel A for DCA got kind of a rude awakening this week, and it's a wonderful opportunity, but it's a question of do we stick with what we're doing here? Do we change what we're doing here? Or do we do the really big, smart thing, go the, the bold thing, and go for a whole part? All right, so we'll uh, we'll see.
0: Okay. Let's move on to our main show topic for the day, which is finishing up the history of the SpectroMagic Parade. In the first episode of that we talked about this, Jim, you went over the history of why Disney thought it needed a nighttime parade and all the things they tried before getting to Spectrum Magic, right? And where do we leave off on that?
1: We basically left off on its Disney World's 20th anniversary, and this has been dubbed as the Year of Surprises. This is a Disney company that's dealing with the fact that there are now three theme parks in Florida, so you have to sort of spread the surprises around, Mm -hmm. and you have to make this affordable when you're you're trying to do a resort size celebration you're looking for economies Mm -hmm. so for example the surprise celebration parade over at the magic kingdom this was built around these 35 40 foot tall cold air balloons of mickey Mm -hmm. Minnie, donald goofy and pluto which were basically recycled uh, party grab balloons from disneyland's 35th anniversary and The thing that kind of frustrated the folks over at Epcot is they'd gone out to California, had seen these balloons in that parade, and were like, Mm -hmm. ooh, those look cool. Let's do something like that for our park. So they had come up with this project called Surprise in the Skies, which really, honestly, kind of keyed off of the Scalidoscope show, Summer of 85, and it was mm. this weird hybrid of trying to build a show around the park's only characters, so Dreamfinder and Figment. No, but it sounds
0: delightful.
1: Well, <laughs> it was a trifle problematic. I mean, the gimmick of it was it was an air water show. The theme of the show is that the Dreamfinder in a dirigible. Was supposed to sure. to fly this eighty foot long dirigible out over World Showcase Lagoon, and and th- that's the other problem. Forty five acre lagoon, even an eighty five foot long airship in that looks like a, a juju bee. So to fill that space, they did. 12 dragon boats two giant ones ma and pa and then 10 little dragonette boats they had flying kites and the idea was that the Dreamfinder was going out to world showcase lagoon was going to paint a rainbow in the sky but the dragons come out from the black lagoon and we're going to disrupt this and on paper this was a wonderful show and in fact it it was originally only scheduled for saturdays and sundays at epcot but did was so popular they expanded the schedule from Saturday through Wednesday, but the hard reality was one of the reasons that they started scheduling it from Saturday to Wednesday is the weather in central Florida was so problematic. The wind issues over World Showcase Lagoon were were so bad that the 85-foot-long airship never made it into the show they could never get it off the ground and operated safely in the way that they wanted. Right. But this was a show full of ultralights and kites. It was wonderful to look at. In fact supposedly it was Frank Wells' favorite show that was ever done at the theme parks and the problem was that come August of 1987 it ended abruptly because there was a crash. One of the pilots, I believe his name was Ken Harper of Winter Park a bracket that was holding the right wing of his ultralight broke off and he crash landed about 150 feet away from the takeoff space. Mm. Ken died and the show basically <sighs> died with him. The jump ahead, Disney knew that that show had been ridiculously successful and or popular. And so they kind of revisited it. They stepped away from really being flight-based. They went from ultralights to paraplanes, Mm -hmm. and the gimmick with a paraplane is that the wing of the plane is a parachute. And so even if you were to lose power, you can still make it safely to the ground. Anyway, to circle back to the party gras cold air balloons, the folks at Epcot had so enjoyed what they saw at Disneyland, they ordered 11 of their own. The way the show climaxed was that at the very height of the show suddenly you notice that these giant boxes have been pushed out from all 11 of the World Showcase pavilions. And then the roof flies off in this 45-foot-tall cold-air version of, well, let's see, we had Winnie the Pooh in Canada, Robin Hood in the UK, Pluto in France, Tigger in Morocco and Morocco almost never is featured in any of the nighttime shows
0: yeah they've got prohibitions against certain things
1: well that was the thing they could push out this cold air balloon from backstage and it w- didn't involve actually putting anything on the pavilion itself so the kingdom of yeah. Morocco was sort of willing to work around that anyway Minnie at Japan Mickey rotating the list for the US and then Pinocchio for Italy Daisy for Germany Chippendale for China goofy dresses of Viking for Norway and Don with his Three caballeros outfit for Mexico. So they'd already ordered these cold air balloons when they heard that the Magic Kingdom was bringing the balloons from California. And it's like, thanks, guys. Yeah, thanks for nothing, man. The reason that the folks at the kingdom had done that was because these shows are expensive to produce. And any money that they didn't spend on the daytime parade, they could then apply to the nighttime parade. And... I know we've talked on the previous show about this being the anti-Main Street Electrical Parade, and folks who actually work in the parade have, have reached out and just said, you know, well, can we change the language in there? And what they wanted me to say was this was the more modern successor to the legendary Electrical Parade. Fair enough. Don Franz, the actual producer of Spectro Magic, said if the Main Street Electrical Parade is a snapshot, then what they were going for with uh, the Spectro Magic was they want the completed animated cell. I mean, just to the effect of, it was such a technological jump forward. What they basically wanted to do was have people, they'd seen the twinkling Christmas lights. They mm-hmm. wanted this to be cutting edge in every way they could make it cutting edge. So as they're beginning development on this project, the entertainment staff at Walt Disney World approaches WDI's R&D department and basically says, what do you got? Or what have you heard about? Or what recent technological advances can we take advantage of during the development of this parade?
0: This is a common Disney MO, right? They look at technology and they say, how do we introduce this into the park?
1: Yeah, in this case, Scott Stippick, the lighting designer, now, mind you, we're talking cutting age for 1991, but we were talking about things like prismatic holographs, electroluminescent panels, which they got this technology from the defense industry lens. The butterflies in the parade, those panels that their wings were made out of, that got that bright green-blue glow off of, those things are a thousandth of an inch thick.
0: So uh, you're saying the U.S. Army was trying to weaponize
1: butterflies? Well, I'm with you on this. I'm with you there on we it. go. All of this stuff. Underlighting clouds of liquid nitrogen smoke, fiber optics, uh, light-spreading thermoplastics. All of this stuff was on the table when Spectro was in development, which is how the kingdom wound up with this new night temporary that had more than 600,000 lights. Wow. And just to keep this thing lit, it involved 75 tons of deep cycle batteries. Again, sh- just huge, uh. hugely, hugely expensive. Which is why, in order to get Disney corporate to sign off on this, they did one of the most synergistic. Every unit that was in this parade had some sort of tie back to a Disney corporate effort. Take, for example, the parades. Imagine issuing a Fantasia unit. This is the one people remember mostly for the Chernobog, you'd see Bald Mountain and then the Prey Float would un- unfold and here was Chernobyl with 38-foot long wings spread out over the parade group. Yep. It's not coincidence that was in the parade. Parade debuts in October of 1991. The year previous, 1990, Fantasia, which was celebrating its 50th anniversary that year, was sent back out into theaters after having this digital restoration. Parade debuts October of 1991. November 1st, 1991, for the first time ever, Fantasia is available for purchases. VHS, Betamax, and Laserdisc. So it's like, you give us some money, Buena Vista Home Entertainment, we'll put the thing that you're about to put out in the world in our parade. Kind of the same thing with The Little Mermaid, the Fantasy of the Little Mermaid's Ocean thing. That movie had come out, uh, been released theatrically in 89, uh, November, may of the following year at same thing vhs beta a laser disc. and this was back in the days of the disney vault
0: oh right so
1: okay. in early 1992 this was going to go back into the vault so initially the thinking was well do we really want to be putting this in the parade you know could, could we maybe be talking about well we've got this movie that's about to be released to theaters beauty and the beast But it turns out Disney television animation has begun production on Little Mm -hmm. Mermaid, the animated series. And they're like, hey, we'd really like this to be front of mind. So could you put this in the parade?
0: Could you imagine after the Disney-Fox merger how big a parade We would have to be to include all the properties that people would want in a parade these days. Oh. It would make Macy's or the Rose Bowl (laughs) look like a small town, a small town celebration.
1: Uh, Let me tell you, I'm just putting this out here, Lynn. The friend in entertainment was telling me about we are in this period where we don't have a new nighttime parade at the Magic Kingdom. Right. But they are looking at which units make it into this. When it became apparent that the Fox properties were suddenly available and the pre-existing licensing deals were going out the window, one of the, the new list of things that are being considered for this new nighttime parade includes an Avatar unit because of the bioluminescent forest. Oh, okay. Uh, makes sense. What they were looking to do was for the first time ever to bring the Navi into the parks. Huh. And it's just, it's one of these things where evidently they've turned to entertainment and there are these leg extension sort of stilt units you can use to add three or so feet to a performer's costume. Sure. So it's one of these things where it's like, okay, give me some concepts for Na'vi costumes and give me some possibilities.
0: And give me a well-coordinated intern.
1: There we go. (laughs) Does that necessarily fit into the Magic Kingdom? Not as we know it, but there was a time when at Epcot, it's like, look, there will be no Disney characters. Yeah. And that changed because the guy at the top said that changed. And if Iger says, hey, Fox starts showing up in the Disney parks, in fact, that's well, one of the guys I was talking with yesterday was talking about they were looking over the list of things and it's just sort of like, hey, they made a lot of Shirley Temple movies. Could, you, could we do something with that for the studio? And it's just sort of like, I really? Shirley Temple? But okay.
0: I like the idea of mash in a parade.
1: But, uh, but oh! Okay. Right. No. A mash bar. Oh. Because yeah. they, they had the still, right? That's right. That's right. Anyway, uh, ducking back to Spectra now. One of the really bizarre things that wound up in this parade land there was a it was called the wonder of the sleeping beauty's gardens you have to understand sleeping beauty was never one of the more successful uh, disney animated features i mean when it was released in january 59 it was one of the first times ever the disney company had to report that they had a loss Especially during that run up the first ten years of Disneyland being open. I mean, money was pouring through the door, but Sleeping Beauty did so poorly the company had to report a loss that year. And so uh-huh. and every time they released it, people are like, That's almost entertaining. So when it came time for Disney to open the vault and pick animated features to make available for home entertainment, Sleeping Beauty was kind of right at the top of the pile because, like, nobody wants to actually go see this, but we could try to sell it. Yeah. But what wound up happening is when it went out to became available for purchase in October of 86, this was the first time Disney had done affordable pricing. So Sleeping Beauty was out there for $29.95, and even at that price point, it didn't sell. Okay. And so it's five years later, and even with the, it's going back into the vault, There were still a lot of copies on store shelves. And so Buena Vista Home Entertainment had heard this from retailers. And so they were like, when you're doing this parade, can there be something that makes Sleeping Beauty seem appealing? Right. Well, the problem is
0: Sleeping Beauty herself is the ninth most interesting character in that (laughs) film behind the dwarves and uh,
1: the queen. There you go. So what are you going to do? I mean, the gimmick of this section of the parade is that you have the three good fairies on, on the floats as they were originally envisioned in the parade, you know, they're taking advantage of the new technologies that Flora and and Meriwether could wave their wands and change each other's costumes in front of you. And that was kind of a cool effect in 91. But the other thing is they waved their wands and changed the garden floats they were standing on from a daytime garden to a nighttime garden. Right. Tell me what scene in Sleeping Beauty featured the nighttime garden changing to a daytime garden. Uh, is that when she wakes up? <laughs> There's no scene, Len.
0: (laughs) Oh, I guess that was my next thing.
1: They had to invent something that didn't happen to try to make the movie entertaining. I don't think people are that
0: worried about Snow White canon as much as uh, some other properties. I
1: know, I, I get that. All I can tell you flat out from the guys who worked on it, it's like we looked at the entire movie, there was nothing that fit in with the technologies that we had that we wanted to take advantage of. So we went another way. And at the same time, this is a parade that's trying to support arms of the company that didn't normally chime in with a parade. Like for the silly symphony sections of this parade. Back in 86, Disney had put out what they called the Cartoon Classics Gold Editions. Mm-hmm. This was the one that the, the whole push was it's limited edition and you can get Silly Symphonies and our Cartoon Classics. And again, didn't sell laid on store shelves.
0: I actually got the LaserDisc of the original Mickey Mouse cartoons. Did
1: you? Okay. Yeah. And how often did we watch that, Len?
0: Uh, twice. There we go. It, the problem was it was it was difficult to hook up the laser disc. This is back in the days when TVs had one input mm-hmm. besides cable, and it was difficult to unhook the VCR and hook up the laser disc just to watch the one thing when I wanted to. So it basically sat. And now everything's available on YouTube anyway, so.
1: So again, this whole section's trying again to, to put Silly Symphony in front of mind and maybe convince people to buy the, the Silly Symphony discs that are still sitting on store shelves five years after the fact. But the other thing, that, talking with the guys who worked on Spectral Magic, Roger Rabbit had just come out a year or two previous. And one of the the moments out of the movie that that these guys who were working on Spectrum Magic loved was when Roger was hiding out in the theater with Eddie Valiant and he's, a Goofy cartoon comes on and Roger blithering about how great Goofy is. The quote is actually, boy, did you see that nobody takes a wall up like Goofy. What timing, what finesse, what a genius. (laughs) And so they decided that when they were going to do the silly sympathy section, they were going to have Goofy and Roger work together That totally makes sense It's genius Let's do the parade That the Disney fans Would really appreciate Even when we're servicing All these agendas Let's give them that moment That they really want to see So these two classic characters together And then let's give them The things that just wow them I mean to, to this day when you talk with people about this parade, they talk about, for example, the animatronic Sebastian in the Little Mermaid section.
0: Yeah, that's one of the most important footage for that section of the parade.
1: Yeah. This sort of stuff had never been done before on a parade. The use of fiber optics, or the effect at the end where you had practical pig at the front with his paintbrush. Who with a flick of the paintbrush, all of the floats in that particular end, we either would go from a silver white classic color to suddenly just saturated with color. That whole you know the Disney palette. This was all ridiculously cutting edge, and then backed by this amazing score that John Denby had recorded with a seventy-piece orchestra. When it debuted in October of 91, it just blew everybody's socks off. And the notion was, and the folks at Disney World were standing there, and it's like, all right, finally, we've topped the Main Street Electrical Parade, and we can't wait to march our parade around the world and replace all of the Main Street Electrical Parades. But then, just six months later, Euro Disney opens, and uh, how about we save the tail end of this for the, the next time?
0: All right. We'll wrap up with well. Here where Disney, basically kills every every project. There you go. We'll, uh, there we go. We'll go over what uh, what happened there.
1: Yeah, just, just rather than have this drag on for another hour because that was a lot of Fox stuff to talk about. And but I promise it, next show we'll button this stuff up.
0: So quick uh, quick note to uh, to Disney and every other entertainment company for the next couple of weeks, don't do anything major. <laughs>
1: But I hate to say this, but by the next time we record, you know, the Galaxy Nights is is going to have happened at the studios and that panel where they talk about Galaxy's Edge is going to have happened and likewise The Last Jedi.
0: Yeah, if it doesn't if it isn't past 500 million by the next time we talk next week, Jim, I'll be shocked.
1: All right. right. Well, We'll talk then if we can be heard over all the cash pouring in.
0: All right, folks, you've been listening to the Disney Dish podcast with Jim Hill. We are produced by Aaron Adams, who is working his fingers to the bone, Jim, I think with all the the different shows that we're, we're trying to produce here, uh, between your Marvelous, this show, the new Touring Plans podcast we've launched, mm-hmm. Aaron has a lot of listening to do. I think he's got two pairs of headphones, one for each year. There we go. I think that's what he's doing. Okay. So please go on to uh, iTunes and Stitcher or your local parade float and write a review of the show and tell us what you would like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show. Take care.